0: This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished speakers, on behalf of the Class of 1968, the Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement and the Goldman School of Public Policy, welcome. I'm Brad Barber, a member of the Class of 68, and I'm privileged to serve on the advisory board of the Center. Before we begin today's important program, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Center, why the class decided to establish it, and why we believe it's still relevant today. And today's topic is very much on point for the Center The class of 1968 arrived on campus in 1964, fired with the idealistic enthusiasm of youth due in part to the civil rights movement and to the inspiring words of the late President John Kennedy, who had only recently spoken at Berkeley. And he admonished us in his inaugural address to ask not what our country could do for us, but rather what we could do for our country— No sooner had we filed our first reg cards than the free speech movement began on campus. Students from the center and the right, as well as the left, supported it, and this was quickly followed by other movements pertaining to the war in Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the environment, and other great issues of the day. In many ways, everything seemed to start at Berkeley, and many of our class members were drawn, and still are, to the great controversies of the day. We believed in involvement and in the freedom to debate and speak freely about those issues, and we still do. Over time, however, the debate became increasingly shrill, sometimes violent, and the notion attributed to Voltaire that I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, seemed to be honored in the breach in a society as those who support unpopular ideas were often shouted down or found no forum. The kind of civil dialogue that many members of the class looked forward to in the days of the free speech movement seemed increasingly to have become incivil as members of one side of an issue sought to demonize the others with ad hominem arguments It seemed in some respects a betrayal to the ideas of the free speech movement, and it wasn't just confined confined to Berkeley, as the public seemed to respond to incivility by geographically sorting themselves and moving to areas where they agree with others politically, socially, and culturally. Others simply withdrew from democratic engagement and involvement altogether, as they found the incivility depressing or disgusting. Some members of our class thought that in the spirit of the free speech movement and in all that our class lived through and still supports, we should do something about it. So having met regularly for years, for the 40th reunion, we decided to establish the Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement at the Graduate School of Public Policy as our 40th anniversary present to the University. In addition to lectures at homecoming and important programs such as today's, we support Cal undergraduates who are studying as interns in Washington DC. We support participatory, citizen participatory budget processes in Vallejo and in other local uh, governments and other activities intended to promote Civility, and public engagement in the public process. All of this, of course, takes money, and the Center is supported with private gifts from members of our class. If you're interested in the work of the Center and wish to see it expand and to grow, we, of course, welcome your support. Uh, so I would urge you to look at the website gspp.berkeley. .edu slash ccde, the Center for uh, Civility and Democratic Engagement. Now for today's program, it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished moderator, Dick Beers, who graduated from Berkeley in 1968, a major in history. He served as ASUC president in the tumultuous year 1968. Now retired, he spent 35 years as a media executive at Time Warner whereas positions included being president of Comedy Central and Court TV. In 2001, Dick and his wife Carolyn funded the creation of the Beers Environmental Leadership Program on the Berkeley campus, and for over a decade, it has been a forum for 350 environmental leaders from over 75 countries around the world to receive intensive training in sustainable development practices through a Three and a half week multidisciplinary program. His wife, Carolyn, and all four children also have have Berkeley degrees, which itself is a distinguished undertaking. So, please welcome Dick Beers.
1: Thank you very much Brad and I'd like to thank everyone from the class of 68 and the first couple of rows here who've as always done a spectacular job of putting the program together it's always done uh, beautifully uh, I can't help but follow up on Brad's uh, referencing JFK's iconic quote which we all recall but sometimes I can't help myself and have to have a little digression Benjamin I Wheeler was kind of the first great president of the University of California and when he was sworn as president around 1900, I may be off by one or two years, at his acceptance, he said, Ask not what your university can do for you, ask what you can do for your university. So, anyway. <laughs> so he, he, he was ahead of the curve on that observation. Uh, our panel today is going to be focused on big money politics after Citizens United, keeping voters engaged in democracy. And I think we would all agree that these are not particularly happy times that we live in, and there's a great deal of controversy, and I think sometimes I think we feel like perhaps there's even efforts to discourage people from being engaged. And I think you look at almost any election cycle, voter turnout is a huge impact on who wins or loses, no matter where you're coming from on the political spectrum. So the question is, the point of engagement is a very critical one. Uh, Today we have a very distinguished panel. Uh, I think you've all seen the literature, have them, so I'm going to be uh, a little brusque and go through very quickly, just highlight a few points because I think you're all aware of who they are. But I must tell you it's a little bit humbling to take such distinguished resumes and uh, parse them a little bit. In any event, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak, Uh, They will each make 15 minutes of opening remarks, which happily gives us over half an hour for questions and answers at the end, which I think we always find at these uh, these sessions to be very stimulating. I'll lead off off with Nate Persily, who is the McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford University, uh, immediately to my right. He's a nationally recognized constitutional expert and he's taught at Columbia, Penn, Harvard, NYU, and Princeton. Also, he has a very distinguished uh, career of having got his undergraduate degree at, is it Princeton or Yale?
2: The important thing is I got my PhD at Berkeley. So, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: unfortunately, and now you can move to her. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, Nate stole my punchline. I was going <laughs> to... I was going to go all through all these degrees he had at Stanford, and then say he finally caught up with us with a Berkeley degree. But, but in any event, more and I think what I'm going to have to do is surrender. I, I just turned 70, and I thought, "Is this is the year I wear glasses when I read?" And so, uh, I'm going to do that. But I think very significantly, he has done an awful lot of writing on the subjects at hand. And I think most significantly, his book "Solutions to Polarization" emphasis on the first word was published yesterday, so I'll promise you one sale right now, I'll, I'll, I'll get it on Monday, I'm glad to hear that that's, that's occurred, uh, but, and then our second speaker is going to be Eva Pitt Patterson, who is the co-founder and president of the Equal Justice Society, I think it's safe to characterize her as a groundbreaking civil rights attorney. And she has been at the forefront of many social issues from immigration, gender issues, things, discrimination against different communities. And so she's really been at the front lines. Uh, She was student body president at Northwestern University, but then rounded up well with a JD from UC Berkeley uh, (laughs) School of Law. (laughs) Our final speaker is going to be Uh, Pete Peterson, who is the executive director of the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement and Civic Leadership with the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. So we have both Berkeley and Pepperdine's public policy schools uh, involved with this event today. And I think it's best to summarize Pete as a civic engagement expert. Uh, He has very significantly co-created and co-facilitated the training seminar public engagement, the vital leadership skill in difficult times, and he was also the 2014 Republican candidate for California Secretary of State and has been a public affairs fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, We've asked if Nate could lead off. Perhaps I think everyone here is aware of Citizen United, but I think there's probably a large discrepancy of how much we know about it. So Nate, take us wherever you would like to, but the big thing is perhaps give us a little bit of a context of exactly what Citizens United means. It was overturned five years ago, what's happened. And do that in 15 minutes. OK,
2: well, I'm going to use the podium since, you know, uh, I, maybe it's my PhD training at Berkeley, but now I can't give a talk without using PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> I'll say that I, you know, I have my PhD in political science from Berkeley, my law degree at Stanford, and now I teach at Stanford. Um, I often say that you can tell which hat I'm wearing if I'm, uh, I'm a political scientist when I have data without opinions. Uh, I'm a lawyer, a uh, law professor, when I have opinions without data. <laughs> and I'm a practitioner depending on what my client says. So, so uh, in that, I would, and then let me also say, as so a scholar of election law and election administration, I also served as the president's, um, the research director for the president's commission on election administration uh, for the last year or so. Um, to some extent, I treat my role as almost like an anthropologist studying human cannibalism. There's a certain point at which you have to suppress normal human impulses of disgust and revulsion and replace them with fascination and curiosity. And and so with that, I'm going to talk about Citizens United. Uh, And and (laughs) let me, let me, let me just say that, but, but, let me let me just start with something—a a snapshot of just where I am. Which is, it cannot be uh, disputed that whether you're talking about rich people or corporations, that they have uh, disproportionate influence on American politics, and that inequality is an engine of both polarization and what um, uh, is uh, happening in, in our politics. Um, however, uh, Citizens United, I find having taught it. Uh, dozens of times, is a case which is misunderstood by most people, the actual facts of Citizens United. And um, what I want to focus on is the future and what Citizens United says about the future of campaigning, okay, and, and where we're going. So let me just, let me just try to dispel some, some frequent myths about Citizens United. Uh, the way it is portrayed in the media is that it, this is the decision which allowed rich people to give unlimited, or to spend unlimited amounts of money on, on politics. Okay? The truth is that's been true for 40 years since the Supreme Court in Buckley versus Vallejo said that rich people were allowed to spend unlimited uh, sums. So that's always been the case. Um, it has not allowed corporations to give money to candidates. It allows them to spend unlimited amounts of money. That might be a you know, a lawyer's trick, uh, to, to point that out, but just so that we understand what's at issue in these cases. It's about the ability of corporations to spend, uh, money on politics, not to give it to candidates, although super PACs special, um, uh, category of, of contributions and expenditures that are sort of mixed together. Um, the way that Citizens United is described is that this is the decision that made, uh, suggested the corporations were people and that had all the, the, the constitutional rights of people. Well, not exactly. And one thing I want to emphasize today is one of the issues in Citizens United and for regulation of campaign finance generally is which corporations are going to have the right to speak, whether it's going to be media corporations on the one hand or other corporations as well. Um, And then two final, again, really just in my fidelity to to my JD degree, uh, what what Citizens United actually uh, was about. Did it give birth to what we now know as as super PACs? Well, no, actually, there are some other decisions that came afterwards uh, in the lower courts that gave birth to what we call super PACs. Um, And as a consequence of Citizens United, have we seen a flood of corporate money going into campaigns? The answer is mostly not. OK, and most of the money that you see that's in campaigns today, the Koch brothers money, Sheldon Adelson, um, um, the uh, gentleman who just I can't remember his name who's now given all this money for, with Ted Cruz that uh, it's mostly individ- rich individuals who are who are giving a lot. Now, that's a problem in and of itself. OK, but let's Citizens United has become sort of a mantra for our campaign finance problems. But I want to try to impress upon you that the actual issue in Citizens United, the constitutional issue about uh, corporations. And uh, their, their spending is actually a complicated one. So with that, let me just, since most people, I think, don't really know uh, what Citizens United was about, let me play the, move, the trailer for the movie, which was at issue uh, in Citizens United. It's called Hillary the Movie. No doubt the sequel will be coming to you soon.
3: The problem with nostalgia is what we tend to do is you only remember what you like. And you right and you forget the parts that you didn't like.
4: I can support the president, I can support an action against Saddam Hussein. If I had been president in 2003, I never would have started this war. Well, she's flipping, she's flopping. No, she's not flipping and flopping. She's lying. My plan does not create a single new government department, agency, or
0: bureaucracy. That's what God put them on the earth to do, is make promises they can't keep.
4: I'm going to take $10 billion away from a lot of these uh, industries.
0: Hillary is really the closest thing we have in America to a European socialist.
5: Oh, isn't that amazing? Oh, it's a woman. She can walk and talk.
0: She is steeped in controversy, steeped in sleaze. Hillary Clinton, I know, is not equipped, not qualified to be our commander-in-chief. The bigger this campaign is, the bigger the choice is, the more trouble she's in. We must never underestimate this woman. We must never understate her chances of winning. And we must never forget
1: the fundamental danger that this woman poses to every value that we hold
0: dear. You see, I know her.
4: So let the conversation begin. I have a feeling it's going to be very interesting. And that's
2: just the trailer. Uh, so, what, what Citizens United was about uh, is the, a, a non-profit corporation that receives some money from, from for-profit corporations, Citizens United, um, put that movie on demand. So, like, like HBO On Demand, where you can download a movie. That's what the case was about. It was not about an advertisement that a for-profit corporation was putting on and sort of inundating the airwaves with, right? That's sort of the way we think about corporate advertisements. It was more... uh, and One of the reasons I I described it as a case before its time, it's really about what the future of political campaigning is going to be about. It's about you accessing information, accessing uh, uh, an advertisement, or in this case, a movie, and downloading it. And so... uh, once you start thinking about it that way, it becomes a somewhat complicated case. And so, first, let me just talk about what law it violated. Right, the McCain-Feingold law, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, said that any satellite communication that was broadcast within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election that was targeted toward the the electorate, uh, if it used campaign, if it used corporate treasury money, right, uh, it was banned. Right. So, you, and no, so a corporation could not use um, you know, uh, its treasury money within you know before the 2004 election to say, as the ACL you wanted to do, George Bush's Patriot Act is unconstitutional, right? Because it referred to a clearly identified candidate for public office within 60 days of an election. Citizens United, in a move that was pretty strategic to get at this law, puts this movie up on the internet, up on the internet, and also um, on demand. And then also distributed as CDs. And so it could be uh, downloaded. The FEC then uh, prosecuted them and, and they uh, brought it to the Supreme Court and, as you know, won. And they st- the Supreme Court struck down this, what's called the electioneering provision of McCain Feingold. Now, what makes this a weird case, right, is that this is not your typical corporate ad that we're worried about, right? It's not, you're not wor- Generally speaking, if I asked you what your Fear is of corporate um, involvement in politics, which would be more sort of the inundation, right? That's why this is the dam breaking, it's sort of the, the image we have of, of campaign finance. Uh, it's the inundation of sort of the passive and captive watchers of TV to then be sort of have the onslaught of uh, corporate advertisements uh, sort of washing over their eyes. Now, of course, we in California, we don't get as, as much of that. Maybe we'll get it in the occasional statewide governor's campaign or. Uh, competitive uh, congressional seat, depending where you are. Uh, But if you're in Ohio or Florida, you see it a lot. Um, So the holding in Citizens United is that corporations and unions, because uh, unions were also prevented from using their treasury funds to run these ads, have a First Amendment right to spend as much money as they want on electioneering, right? Um, Which is what individuals had the right to do prior to that. So individuals in Buckley v. Vallejo 1976 were granted a constitutional right by the Supreme Court to spend as much money saying, say, vote for me or vote for Obama as they wanted to. Um, More than that, what Citizens United also did, it it, it suggested a very strict definition of corruption. So what is corruption for First Amendment law is actually a very narrow concept now. So it's really limited to the almost quasi-bribery The court says just the fact that money might have an influence on politics is not actually the touchstone of, uh, cannot be the touchstone of a regulation. You have to sort of prove that there is uh, something like a quid pro quo arrangement. One other uh, less heralded aspect of Citizens United, though, and it's important if you think about the possibility of regulation going forward, is that it upheld disclosure. Okay, So when we talk about dark money in American politics, which is what a lot of sort of the, the focus is on, Uh, Dark money uh, is a product of the fact that the federal statutes don't regulate all of the money in the system. It's not a product of Citizens United. Citizens United, even with justice, it was actually 8 to 1 at the Supreme Court. Citizens United says you can force people to disclose uh, their identities when they're um, uh, spending money. And so that is... Uh, uh, that's an aspect of Citizens United that's not appreciated, but if you wanted to think about reform in the future, disclosure is something that you can, uh, that the Supreme Court says you're allowed to do. All right, so there are a lot of ways the Supreme Court could have gotten rid of this case. They chose not to because they definitely, wa- they wanted to deal with the big issue of um, whether corporations have these First Amendment rights to spend uh, uh, unlimited amounts of money on politics. If you're interested in the drama behind it, read uh, Jeff Tubin's book on the Roberts Court. Now, what I want to uh, suggest to you, though, is that, as I said at the beginning, that Citizens United is a case as much about the media and the medium, okay? And so thinking, the the hard fact of Citizens United is how do you distinguish between regular corporations, for-profit corporations on the one hand, and media corporations on the other? And then secondly, the medium of political uh, expression, um, Because, As I said, Citizens United is a case before its time because in the future, uh, not too distant future, this may be the last election that's coming up that's going to be preoccupied with television ads. Uh, Most of the communication that you received is is going to be over the Internet uh, because the TV is going to be basically an outgrowth of your computer if it isn't already. And so when you start thinking about this question of regulating corporate expenditures through that lens, it becomes extremely difficult. If we have time toward the end, I can play a little uh, snippet of the oral argument from Citizens United where the most difficult thing that the acting Solicitor General confronted was this question. Can you ban corporate books that refer to candidates for office? Suppose that they, uh, put, instead of Hillary the movie, they had produced, you know, Doubleday had produced Hillary the biography, Okay. Clearly, you, the Solicitor General, are not going to say that you could ban books that are produced by corporations. And he could sort of goes back and forth, and in the end, he says, well, yes, you can. And then, as I'm told from people who are in the court that day, there was an audible intake of air on the court, because people said... <gasps> and what I tell my students in my First Amendment class, I say, and if you learn nothing else in this course, if you argue for the Supreme Court, don't be on the side of book banning, right? Because uh, that is sort of a... a surefire way you're not going to end up uh, winning the case. But it raises an interesting question. So do corporations not have First Amendment rights? Well, if if they really don't have First Amendment rights, then you could ban uh, uh, corporate-sponsored books, right? Is there a way to distinguish uh, corporate ads, corporate movies, uh, pamphlets uh, uh, from books? Um, And that that proved to be extremely difficult for uh, the lawyers in the case. Secondly... And I'll end here, since I'm, and I can, we can do more in the question uh, and answer. What about uh, the, the medium uh, and thinking about the, the advent of the Internet? So I've spent a lot of time, and uh, as you can see this online, had a conference with the Federal Election Commission on regulation of the Internet, and we brought in all the folks from Silicon Valley to talk about this. Um, and there is a real challenge in thinking about how, as difficult as it is to regulate television advertisements, whether it's disclosure or the amount of money that's being spent on it, once campaigning moves to the internet, right, where a, you know, a, a uh, Russian teenager in his mother's basement can put up a YouTube ad, right, saying vote for or vote against someone in American politics, or a Saudi sovereign wealth fund can do it, let alone corporations in the United States or elsewhere, um, then it, it, it almost becomes unregulable. Right, and uh, that's why Citizens United, because it was really about this pull technology, the ability to access uh, these kinds of ads, is is a a case before its time. So, uh, but to end on a happier note, or at least a perspective note, so what's the solution, right? What what do you what do you try? Because as was mentioned before, we've got a a book on solutions to polarization, and there's a lot on campaign finance in it. Public funding, which is what basically every other country in the world does, is, some, is the way around uh, a lot of these problems. Uh, trying to accentuate the voices of candidates and parties at the expense of these outside groups is really the constitutionally safest and, as a matter of regulation, maybe the only effective way to try to counteract the influence of the outside voices, which are both having, I think, a corrupting influence on our politics, but also... Um, polarizing it as well and preventing us from solving sort of uh, widespread and, and agreed-upon problems. So with that, I'll, I'll end, and we're going to have more in the questions. Thank
1: time. you very much. That was great, Nate, and I'm, I'm already looking forward to the q and I mean, I can tell we're going to have a, a lively discussion here. I couldn't help but note when um, uh, Nate said he wanted to end on a happier note, and sometimes we all get depressed these days, and I, then I remember well, we fought a civil war 150 years ago where 700,000 people were killed by, uh, by the other side. Uh, so perhaps we've made some progress in terms of the quality of our discourse. <laughs> Although at the same time, sometimes I feel it's like we're... A bar, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also sometimes I get a little concerned people are rearming themselves. They feel this intent to... Uh, that. There's other ways to address these things. Anyway, I'd like to turn it over to Eva, please, to uh, make her remarks. And, again, she's been an outstanding, groundbreaking civil rights lawyer and give the perspective of different groups that are involved in the electoral process. How is Citizens Uniting affecting them? And also, I think Nate did a valuable service broadening it behind Citizens United as well at pointing out there's all kinds of issues here, fragmentation of... uh, Media shares and the like. So don't feel obligated just to limit your comments
5: to Citizens United. Well, I thank your class and the people from the class of 68 because I was in Chicago watching all of you at Northwestern and thinking, this is the place I want to be. I became what my mother called a black hippie and moved out here in 1970. <laughs> And then got into both. I mean, UC Berkeley Law School. So, um, and I'd like to there you go. Yay, yay. Um, And I'd like to recognize Lynn Price, Thank you for inviting me. My friend Annette. She and I were young girls together and grew up, and we have stories on each other, but we won't tell. Um, So, that's true. Um, I have a little different perspective on campaign finance reform and Citizens United. How many of you saw the video of Walter Scott being shot in the back as he ran away? Okay, if you recall what that was about, he was stopped for having one of his uh, tail lights out in his car. Now, years ago, a bunch of us had a conference in the Bay Area in San Francisco about why there is such mass over-incarceration of black and brown people, and one of the things we found was something that was known back in the day as driving while black and brown. There was a notion that if you're black or brown, you're going to get stopped for things that white or Asian American people may not, and obviously I'm speaking overly generally, um, and some of my best friends are white and Asian American, so don't trip (laughs) as I'm talking, Annette. Um, (laughs) um, But there was a notion that um, a lot of uh, unconscious racism was taking place and having black folks stopped for no reason. So one thing we did is we put together some legislation in the California legislature that passed the Senate and the Assembly that required police officers to keep records of who they stopped and the race and ethnicity of the people that they stopped. We got, you're probably going, this has nothing to do with uh, campaign finance reform. Are you in the wrong room, Ms. Patterson? Um, but the uh, legislation was passed. And then Governor Gray Davis, Democrat, vetoed it. And we're going, what? And so I talked to one of his top aides who was a black man who was a labor guy. And he said, Davis vetoed this because your community didn't give him any money. It was like, what? And this guy was very close to Gray Davis. I was just completely blown away. So because I'm a person who takes action, I ended up putting together a conference called campaign finance reform as a civil rights issue. I hadn't really cared that much about campaign finance reform. It was an interesting issue, but I had lots of other things going on. But it seemed to me that particular action made it very clear that money affects democracy. I, was, I, was, I still get blown away by being told that straight up. So one of the things I want to focus on about this whole issue is how it affects voting and democracy, which is what this, this uh, gathering is about. Um, this summer, we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I never miss an election because I know literally people died so that I could vote. There's also this notion that everyone's vote is equal. The Koch brothers ballot and vote is the same as mine. There's also a notion that voting affects public policy. You saw in Ferguson that many where Michael Brown was shot, that many people felt that many people, black and black people, were disproportionately stopped for traffic. Violations because this is how the town was making its money. And so black folks in Ferguson were not really voting in good numbers. So apparently the the percentage doubled this time because if you have a different mayor, a different city council, you might have different outcomes and you might have public policy that does not necessarily uh, have its its, uh, city coffers filled by stopping black people for taillights being out. Um, uh, Voting also affects people's material reality. We're working with a lot of Latinos in the Central Valley on a number of issues, but some of the communities that don't have voting power don't have sidewalks, there's no garbage pickup, and the like. So if you don't have access to voting, your material reality may be negatively impacted. So having the ability to vote and having that vote have an impact on the decision-makers is critically important. So let's go to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. How many of you saw Selma? If you haven't seen it, go see it, fabulous movie. But you remember the character played by Oprah Winfrey is asked these ridiculous questions and because she couldn't answer them, she wasn't allowed to vote. The March on Washington in 1963 was aimed in part at changing voting rights and making voting more uh, accessible for black people in the South but all through the country. When When the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, Lyndon Johnson famously said to Bill Moyers, we have just given the South to the Republican Party. And as you've seen, the South used to be reliably Democratic, now it's reliably Republican. In 1970, Richard Nixon came up with something called the Southern Strategy, where he decided he would speak in coded language to Southern white voters, letting them know, hey, we've got your back. He talked about law and order. That was to evoke lawless black people. He talked about forced busing. This was to evoke the fact that his government was not going to fully desegregate schools. At the same time, in the summer of 1970, Lewis Powell, who later became a Supreme Court justice, wrote an opinion uh, to the Chamber of Commerce, a memo to the Chamber of Commerce, saying that the... um, courts and the academy have been taken over by progressive people. And so we need to make sure we don't have progressive people on the courts and we need to make sure that the academy isn't just totally overrun with liberals and progressive people. So he didn't disclose this memo and he was up to become a Supreme Court justice. He got confirmed um, and then later the memo came up. And you're probably still going, what does this have to do with campaign finance reform? Let us fast forward to the year 2000. In Florida, Catherine Harris, you may remember her, she and her group got together and decided that they would go through the voting rules and make sure that any people who they thought had been felons were kicked off the voting rules. In retrospect, many, 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 many black people who were eligible to vote were kicked off the voting rules. They then weren't just satisfied to f- focus on the uh, Florida criminal records, they went into Texas, and so they had felons in Texas, and if your name was like a felon in Texas, and you were on the Florida voting rolls, you were kicked off. Now, what happened on this occasion was that black people were disenfranchised, and then you had the great hanging Chad disputed election in 2000. Now there's a law professor here. I've taught as an adjunct, so I don't have your your credentials. But um, many of my friends who teach constitutional law say it's very difficult for them to teach the case that came down and decided that election, Bush v. Gore. Um, they even said in the opinion, this this. Um, holding only applies to this fact situation. I've heard, and maybe you can uh, say, tell me if this is apocryphal, but someone said that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had in her original version of the opinion uh, the statement that the only equal protection rights that have been violated in this circumstance are those of black Floridians. Scalia asked her to take that out because this was going to be the history of this election, and she took it out. It breaks my heart that she did that, but think about the fact that you were disenfranchising black folks, you had a disputed election, had we been on the rolls in a righteous way, the election would have come out a different way. So, you have President Bush instead of President Gore. You have Roberts and Alito appointed to the Supreme Court, you then have Citizens United. So you see how this all kind of connects together. If you pervert the, um, the, the right to vote, if you keep black people from having our votes counted, you have these dire, dire consequences. So we come full circle. We look at what this current Supreme Court has done in terms of voting rights. You've got the Shelby County case. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed to make sure that certain counties and jurisdictions in the South that had had a history of disenfranchising black people that these particular jurisdictions were looked at very closely. And if they were changing certain rules and regulations, they had to have these regulations pre-cleared by the Justice Department. The Shelby County case, with the majority now that is the result of the dealing of the election, to me, I just will speak for myself, the class of 68 doesn't endorse what I'm saying necessarily, Berkeley doesn't endorse what I'm saying necessarily, but it felt to me like a bloodless coup. Black people were not allowed to have our votes counted and it affected who became president and we've had all these consequences flowing. You've had other things that have been put in place that have been restricting the right of African Americans, Latinos, poor people, seniors to vote. There's very, very little voting fraud in this country. People think, oh, it's rampant. It is not. So if you have this lie that there's voter fraud about in the land, and the way to correct this is to have voter IDs, logically you think having to show a voter ID, that seems like a logical thing to do. Um, but many people don't have access to um, driver's license, they don't drive, students are moving around, and so you are disenfranchising many people by having these restrictive voter ID regulations. I don't know if any of you saw some of the pictures of uh, jurisdictions and voting booths in Ohio where you had black people wrapped around the block having to wait in line for hours in order to vote. That's another way to frustrate the vote and, and to eliminate full enfranchisement. So you have a court that is in place, in my humble opinion, because of manipulation of voting, because of the suppression of the black vote, because you, and then you've had very negative consequences flowing. The problem with the role of money in um, uh, American politics is not just about race, it's about a whole host of things. If you're rich, you have a lot more influence on what happens in terms of public policy. You've got this new Pacific policy, a Pacific, it's called TPP, and I don't quite totally understand it, but from what I understand, everybody's saying it's going to have a horrible impact on American workers. Yet American workers, because unions have been uh, kind of weakened over the past few decades, American workers have very little say in the American political process. The last thing I'll say is this, and I'm just quoting from... um, Um, somebody I heard probably on MSNBC last night, but they said look at the big collapse of the economy in 2008, who was helped by that? Somebody said there could have been a plan where you gave money to people whose mortgages were going south to keep their homes. I remember Paul Krugman screaming at President Obama, who I love and voted for, but he was saying jobs, 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 jobs. There were no jobs plans coming out of the White House. You had the people who ruined the economy, yet we have this kind of axiomatic statement, too big to jail. Nothing happened to those people who ruined the economy because they have disproportionate power in our system. And it has a lot to do with not just campaign finance reform and campaign financing, but with lobbying. What you hear now is that candidates are on the phone 24-7 raising money. You can't fault them you will be buried, at least for the present, by TV, by ads for TV, and you'll be buried by your opponents. So candidates have got to spend all their money raising funds. And as the professor pointed out, the Supreme Court has said, getting influence as a result of your contributions does not constitute corruption. But it certainly does mean that it's not a level playing field. And so we as a, as a society must figure out how to deal with this. I'm for full public financing of elections. I think that's the way to go. I think it levels the playing field. But I wanted today to kind of bring a little different flavor to the discussion and talk about how African Americans, people of color, poor people, and the civil rights movement intersect with campaign finance and campaign finance reform. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Eva. And I think that's a, kind of a perfect segue to Pete when you're talking about the challenge for candidates to spend all their time raising money. And uh, I want to thank you, Pete, for having the courage and the fortitude to step into the arena and run for office. I, I must say, as a citizen, I have oftentimes thought, who would want to run? And, and these these days, with money playing such a role... So anyway, you have a fascinating experience here with civic engagement. Love to hear your perspective on the issues at hand, but also I think everyone would be interested in how all this impacts a candidate.
3: So first let me say thanks so much for having me. I am a huge fan of Goldman and specifically the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement. Thanks so much to Lynn Serta-Price for asking me and Larry to see you here always a real pleasure. Uh, I've had a couple opportunities to engage with you all, and uh, I've had nothing but a great experience. Um, And might I say, as a Republican from Santa Monica, I feel a certain comfort level being here uh, in Berkeley. Uh, My last time here on campus, actually, was uh, about five months ago, was for the last debate of the Secretary of State campaign. You hosted it here at Chevron Hall, and uh, at the end of that debate, I had a couple Cal students come up to me afterwards and say that I would be the first Republican they had ever voted for. So a couple experiences here that I will remember fondly for the rest of my life, whether I ever run for office or not. Uh, I was actually speaking at an event in Idaho about uh, a month ago, and it was at a university there, and one of the professors had come up to me afterwards and said she had never met a Republican who had lost, (laughs) and uh, I said, you need to come to California. Um, I want to frame my remarks really around California. California. Um, because obviously while the discussion of campaign finance is almost overwhelmed by the discussion of Citizens United, I think Nate has done a tremendous job of framing what Citizens United means and what it doesn't mean. I want to talk a little bit about my experience as a candidate, someone who's been involved in the world of public policy for about a decade, but learned some very interesting lessons that I hope uh, were at least... Um, eye-opening for me, and I hope might be, uh, might be enlightening for you all. Um, Let there be light is the phrase here. And um, I want to talk a little bit about that experience and then transition to some places where I think there could be some interesting opportunities for some multi-partisan uh, dialogue around possible reform, and then talk just a little bit about the work the Institute does where, where I come from at, at Pepperdine. So at that last debate here at Cal and those two students coming up to me and saying that I'd be the first Republican they voted for, I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you're, you're just not a politician. <laughs> and in that response, was a lot more than I had originally thought. As I mentioned, I'd never run for any office before, besides throwing my hat in. I've had a lot of people say, wow, Pete, that's, that's really you know taking on statewide office. What made you think of it? You know, it is amazingly easy and cheap to run for statewide office. To run, not to win. <laughs> you only need a few hundred bucks and a signed form with... Ironically, the Secretary of State's office here in California, and you are a statewide candidate. Anybody can do it. But one of the things I learned was, uh, even though I'd been involved in public policy for some time and had engaged and worked with many politicians, the field of political fundraising here in California was a world that I just was not familiar with. And in particular, there's a force at work here that really has little to do with citizens united but nonetheless has a lot to do with who represents us and in this it's a discussion not so much about republicans and democrats as it is about insiders versus outsiders i want to talk about something called the third house does anybody know who the third what the third house is anybody okay So towards the end of our campaign, um, we had a very limited budget. It was recently reported by the Los Angeles Times about a month and a half ago that in my campaign, we were outspent eight to one. And in that, we still managed to get more votes than any other Republican, about 3.2 million votes. And so I'm very proud of that, although I hate to finish second. (laughs) But... The reason for that eight-to-one discrepancy, I think, is something that we all need to talk about, and again, in ways that really don't have much to do with Citizens United. So the third house is the rather congenial name given to the group, association, loose organization of PACs, membership organizations, lobbying groups, political fundraising organizations that give money to candidates. Sometimes they do that through political action committees. Sometimes they just give it directly to candidates. In my particular race for Secretary of State, the fundraising, the fund giving limit was $6,800 for an individual and a PAC. Towards the end of our race, as we were beginning to look at the fundraising totals that were made available on the CalAccess database, which If there's ever an ironic name to something, it's the Cal Access Database. There really isn't a lot of access given through the Cal Access Database. Um, But suffice it to say, the Cal Access Database is the campaign finance reporting database here for the state of California. Um, It became apparent that not only were we being outraised, but we were being outraised by the third house. So much so that The graphic that we were, the infographic that we created on the campaign that was the most forwarded and shared on Facebook, because, of course, we never had money to do TV advertising, um, was a a stacked bar graph that showed, in breaking apart the fundraising sources between individuals, PACs, and corporations – We got about 80% of our donations from individuals and 20% as a mixture of PACs and corporate fundraising. My opponent was almost the opposite. It was about 75% of his fundraising had come from PACs, unions, and corporations, and about 25% had come from individuals. Now, why does this happen? My opponent had been a two-term and terming-out state senator. And I would love to say that I was just a squeaky clean candidate and I had made a principled stand that I am not going to take any money from the third house. That's not the case. On numerous trips to Sacramento, because that's where many of these third house organizations are based, uh, we made repeated attempts to speak to various organizations that go by names that you would never believe have any real connection or interest in the Secretary of State race. You know, like the California State Association of Orthodontists. <laughs> why, why would they care about a Secretary of State race? So we're, we're speaking with a, with a number of these different organizations, and on several different instances, we were told, in no uncertain terms, Pete, it looks like you're running a very interesting campaign, you're kind of presenting this Good government message. You're coming from the outside. There's a chance to maybe never move us towards a two-party state, but maybe a -a one-and-a-half-party state would be nice. (laughs) And then we were told, and this happened several times, that, you know, Pete, we'd love to support you, but we have a bill in front of your opponent's subcommittee tomorrow. And if we give you a check and that goes up on the Cal Access database, we're going to suffer consequences for it. Now, there's been a lot of talk, and actually some significant reforms have come into place around campaign finance here in the state of California. This past year, uh, legislation was passed and signed that limited or created blackout periods in which fundraising could not take place by sitting state legislators in one month prior to the end of session. And what that created for us was what we thought was an opportunity to do fundraising during that period as a non-legislative candidate. And what we learned was really that when we come back into session, it's not like they're not going to know we gave you the money. (laughs) (laughs) So the power of this third house, which even a very learned, politically engaged audience here doesn't seem to know exist, I really think is something you do need to know exists. Now, what can you do about it? As I said, this past year has been the most active around reform on this issue, and I support the blackout periods, such as they are. But I think one of the things that would need to happen is actually non-legislative. I think, and this is something that I've proposed, that unfortunately the way that we evaluate the success of a political campaign is all down to the money they're fundraising, right? If you look at during the campaign, and because we were getting our clock cleaned, whenever a report was made about, here's uh, Pete Peterson against his opponent, his opponent has raised $1.5 million, Peterson has raised $250,000. If you're just picking up the San Francisco Chronicle and reading that, you would say, well, who is this guy, right? Right? without taking that second-level discussion about, well, maybe it would be important for me to know, just in parentheses next to every time a fundraising total is announced, here's where the three different buckets of money, here's where the money is coming from. Because maybe it's great that my opponent was raising 20 times the money we raised from PACs Unions and corporations, but maybe people would like to say, you know what, I want to support someone who's gotten most of their money from individuals. Just that is a a signal to me. So I want to close with maybe something that I think could be of of some interest and maybe prompt some questions. Um, Both technology and legislation is moving in the direction of trying to support and promote greater small donor activity. Uh, Congressman Sarbanes from, uh, from Maryland who uh, is a Democrat but has raised, proposed some legislation that I think is very intriguing, not about a complete and utter public financing of campaigns, but maybe looking at some ways either through uh, tax deductions or actual public financing to buttress and multiply small-dollar donations. Uh, I think that really what most of the public cares about is not so much one candidate getting... $20 million more than another. But say, for example, if it were known that, yeah, one candidate is really getting a lot more than the other, but that person has actually raised more money from individuals, I think that actually could influence the way voters make their decisions and actually could give outsiders like me and maybe like some of you, give us a better chance just through that little piece of information. So I think the proposal by uh, President Obama to... Uh, it's not a proposal, but just maybe that allowance that it would be worth looking at mandatory voting, I think actually multiplies the problems that we think about in Citizens United. If we're going to increase and demand more voters voting, it actually in, it, it, it increases the necessity of raising more money to reach them. Uh, I would really try to uh, get at that more effectively uh, to try to find ways to Uh, support and promote more small-dollar donations and participation. So thank you.
1: Thank, Thank you very much. And a record was broken today. Every one of the speakers was precisely on time. So that does give us a very healthy opportunity for questions. We do have microphones going around. I'd like to ask one very quickly, which is actually a repeat of which I asked Nate beforehand, which is, and this speaks to Pete's point about the importance of transparency. He's saying I may have been out-fundraised you know, out by my opponent, but I'd like to have people know who it is. And I would asked Nate beforehand, how did Citizens United deal with the issue of transparency? In the sense, if the Koch brothers or a specific union are pouring humongous amounts of money in, it helps me just to know that's a fact. So How does it affect it with... Well, so
2: we have a sort of perverse disclosure system in the U.S. right now where you can actually find out how much money your neighbors are giving to federal candidates, over $200, so even small uh, donations. But we don't know about the identities of people who are giving millions of dollars in independent expenditures, right? So you have this kind of strange... uh, uh, And I actually think the disclosure level at $200 discourages some small donors from... uh, Certainly, I actually don't give any money in campaigns because, uh, uh, you know, I do a lot of nonpartisan work and, and, you know, you give money and you immediately get tagged. Um, And so Citizens United says we could force independent groups to disclose. Um, there's no appetite in Congress now to do that. Um, it's interesting because it used to be that the conservative position on, on um, campaign finance was raise the limits and full disclosure. Okay. Um, Now, even disclosure has become uh, uh, divided along party lines, so that there's no appetite for disclosure at the federal level. And you know, at state level, you'll you'll get some forcing of disclosure of independent expenditures. Uh, Now, the, the the conservative argument is that. Um, the more disclosure you force, the more retaliation there is. We obviously had a, we had a case here in, you know, California. Also, they had in Oregon with people who contributed on say uh, on initiatives dealing with bans on same-sex marriage. Uh, that then they felt that they were uh, retaliated against because of their their contributions. But again, the small I, the, the, the small donations can't possibly you know what do we really gain by knowing who's giving 250 dollars to a presidential campaign? It's the big the big uh, independent expenditures. I mean, the Koch Brothers Network says they're going to spend a sort of comically grotesque $889 million in the next election, right? Um, And so it would be useful to know where where that's coming from.
1: Thank you very much. What we're going to do is we'll alternate from... We have microphones on both sides of the room, so we'll alternate.
0: So the question um, you raised about uh, technology, we can't control ISIS from advertising, so I I don't see we're going to be able to control... The new technologies, and uh, Mr. Peterson uh, used Facebook as his strategy. So I was wondering, what does that portend for the future? If we can't really control computers, how how do you see that all playing out for how people... Because I I get most of my information on the computer now, and I can't imagine how you control it.
2: So there's uh, two schools of thought about how this is going to play out. One is... That sort of ABC Nbc CBS are basically being replaced by Amazon, Facebook, iTunes, and the like right Google, uh, and so it 's just a matter of transferring the platforms and, and that the, uh, but there is a difference right in that you know, there are no captive well not, let me say it 's not that there are no captive audiences on the internet, but it 's a much more difficult uh, system of captive audiences than it would be when you're talking about, you know, people who are watching um, sporting events uh, on, on TV. Um, there still will be Super Bowls, right, where people, where it will cost millions of dollars to put ads before people's eyes, and that'll, that'll always be the case. Um, but when I had this conference at Stanford where we had all of the Republican and, and Democratic data people come in, they, say, they were talking about Facebook, and I have to say the people at Facebook are the most sophisticated uh, actors in this area, I've found, in the way that they think about how uh, the, their platform can be used in, in politics. And uh, that's, that is the wave of the future. It's not so much... You're going to get those targeted emails. It's interesting that, you know, why did President Obama, if you know, the, the emails all said, give $3? It's like, why three? It's like, well, they tried two. They tried 10. They tried five. <laughs> and then they experimented. It's like three, it turns out, is the optimal... Sort of first to ask, and then they'll they'll ask you later on for more. Uh, the other thing is um, the the email tagline that's most likely to get you to contribute is "Hey," at at, at the start, and then they, they uh, you are more likely to to get to look at your email if you So all this has been tested. Um, I do think that that. You know, we we focus on regulations, trying to plug up the loopholes, right? Get money out of politics. I just think that's a fool's errand. I just don't see how that's going, how you can actually do that. They have to deal with the supply as opposed to the demand. And so that's why public funding is, for me, uh, sort of almost the only way around this. And I'll say something even more controversial. Since money is coming into the system and it's coming in through the outside in these huge chunks, um, I think we need to redirect it toward the candidates and the parties. I think that it's not. Um, if we were at a, in a system where you could mitigate the influence of these outside groups in some other way, then, then I'd be all for it. The problem is that now it's the outside voices which are having a disproportionate effect as compared to the candidates and the political parties. And that, I think, is, is one of the engines of polarization. Go
0: ahead. Yes. Okay. Uh, several of you said that public financing, it may be the answer to uh, the problem. There are a lot of scoundrels who run for office. And uh, who chooses who gets the money, the public financing money, and how do you do that?
1: Pete, you want to take a crack at that?
3: Well, obviously it would be across the board. I mean, I, I think a couple of states like New York State uh, is and New York City are currently experimenting with public financing. Uh, As I mentioned before, that Sarbanes proposal was really not meant to be the sum total of the resources that a candidate would get. It would really be a way of trying to increase and promote small dollar donation through a matching system. Um, There are ways to get around every single system of finance. I mean, just to see what happened in my own race in this last year, I remember... So many people at the beginning of last year here in California saying, boy, if we can just get that blackout period in place a month out from when all the decisions are are run through the legislature, then if we can just disconnect that from a time perspective, we're really going to be able to do something. And and the second uh, September 1 hit, which was the end of the blackout period from September 1, in my own race, from September 1 through November... uh, that my opponent had raised around a million and a half or $2 million, which in and of itself, just that period, was a record fundraising amount for the Secretary of State's race in California. So, uh, you know, I just think that there are, are a lot of ways around it. To me, I do hearken to a more uh, looking at transparency. I don't think maybe most Californians know that the Pew Center on the State's evaluates every single state election system in something they call their election performance index and it uses about 15 different metrics all the way from finance campaign finance transparency to the use of technology in informing voters california is ranked 49th mm. out of 50 states wow. and so just trying to create awareness around really some of those problems our online campaign finance reporting system is really one of the worst in the country, in the state of California. Um, We beat Mississippi. (laughs) So, in a state like California, to really be so far behind when campaigns are going at 130 miles an hour and our ability to make transparent and available, just in the state of California, I'm not even talking about federal, but just in the state of California, to be so far behind, there's really uh, no good excuse for it. And I, for anybody here that's got an interest in activism, I would be—I would really be working on improving our systems of of reporting. Eva,
5: um, I had looked at the public financing schemes uh, a, a while ago, and I think I saw some schemes that said you had to have a certain number of signatures before, to, and then you'd meet a certain threshold. And then I think another one had a certain number of signatures and people giving you like five dollars to show that you had some support. So I think the thinking is to have some, exactly, some bar that would show that you actually have some basis, some support in the community before you could uh, run and get public financing.
2: Wackos will still get it, though. But that's okay. That's democracy, right? You know, so, um, And, and uh, th- there's several different ways to do it. The matching system, so you, what you could do is if you make it a, a product of the amount of money you're getting anyway, so if, if, for every $5 contribution you get, um, the state gives you $100 or something like that. And, but, but it's not as if you get a million dollars from an individual and then you, the state gives you a million dollars, but you try to privilege the small donors. That's the way New York City does it. Other ways are, you know, for, for qualified candidates based on either signatures or other, other uh, neutral criteria, you give checks. And the other, I mean, most democracies, right, do give money to the political parties as opposed to forcing them to raise it from outside groups.
1: Uh, just, I have another quick follow-on question about public financing. Um, so I think they're still studying a lot of the systems that are out there in terms of what that actually does to the donor base and does this actually work. And I think some places like New York up there are showing that it does actually change the makeup of who who gives to elections. Um, but my question more is about um, actually being able to pass public financing. I think historically... You're already shaking your head.
2: <laughs> yeah, not, um, in the, not in this Congress. I can tell you, I mean, I've, I've had uh, conversations with pretty top... Uh, senators about this, where I said, I said, well, you know, because, you know, I, I gave the spiel on Citizens United, I said, but you should know, I'm in, I'm in favor of public funding. They said, they said, taxpayer-financed elections? And it's like, <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's the end of it, right? Because, because you know, the idea of a public financing is one of the least popular... Uh, even among the general public, least popular campaign finance reforms because the idea of welfare for politicians, which is the sort of uh, way that it's, it's put out there, is not exactly a big selling point, right? Um, and, uh, but you, did, you have seen it in Connecticut and Wisconsin and Arizona a lot. Now, some of them have been poorly structured. The Supreme Court struck down the Arizona system for one reason or another. But I I jumped in before you finished
3: your question. I was going to say,
1: do you see that changing at all at a local level? Yeah. Um, And do you think that there's a way to message public financing to individuals in which we can basically say, look, you you end up paying for elections one way or the other, right? Um, And so public financing is, yes, it's public dollars. But um, without it, here are the other ways that you are sort of end up paying down the road in terms of poor public policy and other things. I guess I would
5: have two responses. One... The incumbents are the people who have the access to the money, so it's not in their interest to say you can't use your access to the money to get reelected. And then the other thing, I'm an Air Force brat, and so I have a lot of friends who are Republicans. I actually have some Republican friends. and (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, And and they feel that the current way of, of financing elections and lobbyists, the third house, they think that stinks as well. So I think this cuts across... Uh, parties, And I haven't seen any polling on this, but it seems to be there it sh- has to be a way you can develop a message to get the people to understand your views are not being taken into account, whether you're Republican, Democrat, unless you're very, very wealthy. Your vote kind of counts, but you don't really have any influence. But I don't know in whose interest it is to push that message, except maybe us on the panel. Well, and I, I would
3: just say as well, I, I think one of the forces to bring change in that area is actually going to come from candidates that are running from the outside, Ooh, right? Because I think, I, I think if there could be shown, and we, we could never get there in my campaign, but what I was desperately trying to do is I wanted to get to a place where I could say, I've had more individuals give to my campaign than my opponent has. And technology, I think, is actually moving in that direction. I have some friends that are working in that space to use Twitter to directly facilitate small-dollar donations. And I think when you start to get candidates, and it's reported that they're running on a very populist platform, which, done well, populist platforms should cut across party lines – if it becomes an insider versus an outsider discussion and you can run a successful populist campaign, which may not raise as much money as the incumbent, but shows where that money is coming from, then I, begin, I think you can begin to open the door towards a discussion. Well, then how can we further promote and encourage more small dollar donations?
5: A very interesting coalition that could be formed around this, you know, um, working class people, poor people, Republicans. I'm thinking of the line from Casablanca, this could be the beginning of a very interesting relationship. (laughs) (laughs) But there are a lot of people who have the same interests, so maybe something could happen. We'll, We'll talk.
0: In addition to public campaign financing, I wonder if you could comment on other solutions to especially polarization political polarization. One of you has written on that subject, but I'd like to hear from all of you.
2: How much time do you have? Uh, so so let me, there are two schools of thought, I think, on what um, how to address polarization. Well, I'll call them the good government and the bad government schools of thought. So good government schools are uh, things like redistricting commissions, campaign finance restrictions, uh, changes to the party primary uh, system, and the like, okay? The hope of the good government school is that you will be able to generate enough uh, elections of moderates that then they would be able to um, mitigate the polarization that we see at at the elite level. I actually think that that's going to be extremely difficult. Um, Because of residential sorting and other problems, uh, it's going to be difficult to uh, somehow get a whole you know swath of rockefeller republicans' Pete Peterson Republicans, if that 's fair uh, uh, or 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 moderate Democrats to be elected. those days are over for a lot of reasons that I could go into and so uh, then the question is which poison do you choose? Do you choose the party leadership now or the outside groups okay and so if you choose the party leadership right then it's, again, it's not moderates, but it's empowering those who can restrict the wingnuts on the outside, right? And, and so the, uh, that is where I come out in a series of reforms, and, and public finance is actually one of them, to try to empower uh, the political parties to, to uh, rein in the outside groups.
5: Um, I'm sorry. I was going to kind of attack the Republicans on this, but I think the Democrats do it as well. The way we now frame political messaging demonizes the other side. And there are are practitioners of this like the cat Frank Luntz who figures out ways to articulate ways to make the other side look bad. The Democrats do it as well. I don't know, it feels like an an arms race from both sides and I don't know in whose interest it is to stop this but both sides um, feel that they can get benefits from polarization and it's been going on for a long time. I do it. I do it. I'm sure I did it in my comments here today. Um, and maybe we all have to step back and figure out that doesn't help our country because it's – well, I'll stop.
3: I, I just want to add in that, too, and go along with Nate. I agree that the it, – it sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but just going from my own experience, that the empowerment of parties actually is a way to get here. Because as you denude parties, which has in some ways been the capital P progressive – history, you actually reduce not only their impact, but the willingness of people to participate in them. So they get smaller and smaller and smaller, but they still have structural power, right? So as, as much as we want to say, you know, the parties are really the problem, in many ways, the interest, I think, towards uh, trying to weaken or at least dampen this polarization is to make the parties as big a tent as possible because we still give them considerable political power. And as someone who had never gone to a political convention before myself running for office, these are unique places. You know, I'll just speak as someone going to a state Republican convention. and But I think it would really be in the interest, especially for those of us who care about polarization, that the bigger tent you make the parties and you have to incentivize that through increasing the power of the parties, you want to get more people involved, then I think that's a way of actually getting at this issue around both polarization and the power of these outside groups that are really, by and large, unaccountable. I
5: have one other thing I want to say quickly, and that is it seems to me at the national level the notion of compromise is now a dirty word. And so how do we get back to the place where Democrats and Republicans know they have to give a little and, and come to some common denominator, that's gone. And I, and I don't know who has the ability to bring that back, but that's all part of the polarization as well, and, and it's tragic.
1: Um, yeah, I just want to thank all of you for coming out today. This is really cool. Um, a lot of you guys touched on the fact that this, is, um, this problem is not in a vacuum, right, that there's systematic causation um, and there are other factors at play. I mean, I'm just kind of curious as, maybe as individuals, what can we sort of do, you know, just me as a, you know, I'm, I, especially as a, as a recent 2014 grad, you know, what can I do? Or what can I talk to my friends about to try and, you know, get a dog in this fight? Um, so I don't, I don't know if what, what you know, so your, your solutions or your takes are on that. I wonder if I could build on that. We're getting towards the end. I'll take one more question in the back here. But I think that's a great question that maybe we could hear from each of the panelists because, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt said, he held out great honor for those that were actually in the arena fighting these battles, and you're doing it. And I have a propensity. I like easy. So I'm looking for the low-hanging fruit. So a lot of people here, I think, are feeling we'd like to make a difference, we'd like to make a change. Where do you encourage people that care about these issues to concentrate their efforts, really. What's, where can we make the biggest difference realistically in a reasonable amount of time? Should we just go
3: this way, perhaps? Sure. Please? So I, I would say join a party first. Um, the second thing I would say is to look for collaborations and the organizations, Common Cause, League of Women Voters, others, that are trying to attack some of these issues around uh, campaign finance transparency. And then I would also start from the local level and then move out. Uh, there is a lot of work to be done just here in California around these issues. I mean, for reasons that I've talked about, especially someone of your age, the, the, uh, the technology issue and how that has been unable for various reasons, many of them political, to penetrate campaign finance. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done there. And so finding partnerships around technology and also lobbying organizations, uh, because quite frankly, one of the unique things I found on the campaign trail is that most people don't know how bad it is, even right here in California. Um, And in large part, I was trying to educate people around that. But there is a lot of work to be done.
5: I'm more somebody who likes to sue people, so <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I might. <laughs> So I may not have a great answer, but somebody on my board is a man named John Boniface, and we did this uh, campaign finance reform as a civil rights issue conference in 2000. He has started an organization called Free Speech for People, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but this is one fix. There are people talking about a constitutional amendment to say that Corporations are not people. They don't have the same speech rights as people. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, I heard that Hillary Clinton was thinking about introducing a constitutional amendment, but that's it's certainly something you could explore, and I think you can just Google or Bing uh, free speech for people, and they'll give you a lot of information. So,
2: Let me just... Uh... So direct this at young people who, who uh, and what their added advantage is in this sphere. Because what's really interesting in the campa- because of the intersection of technology and campaigning, is that if you look at the people who are succeeding, and it is they're all under 35, uh, right, um, and maybe even under 30. I mean, you look obviously Obama's brain trust is is now well known, right. Um, but if you have those skills, and it's not even the, the, not even the tech skills so much as the facility with social media and the like, uh, you have power that you don't realize. Uh, and uh, the, whether it's organizing your friends uh, and uh, becoming active as, as a unit, whether it's within a party or outside of them, uh, I think that exploiting those uh, those skills and resources is, is important. And let me echo something that Pete said, which is we, we tend to focus on presidential elections too much in the big, you know, uh, uh, the big contest. To be perfectly honest, you know, at the presidential level, both parties, or even, even how ridiculous the amount of money that's going to be spent, maybe $4 billion in the next election, it is... Uh, Everyone's going to know everything they want to know about Hillary Clinton and whoever her opponent is. You know, I mean, it's going to—it's not that's not the the main campaign finance problem. The farther down you get, though, the the more difficult it is for those people who don't have name recognition to be competitive. And so, it's really um, important, I think, to get involved at the local and state level.
3: Just a quick Mm -hmm. plug, and I'm not in any ways connected to them in any other financial way. There's a very interesting group out of San Francisco called Brigade. Uh, it's a group Sean that was Parker Sean Parker is behind. Uh, they're about a month away, as I understand it, from launching a whole suite of handheld applications around civic engagement and transparency. Um, and so, finding ways to both network with them and then network out to make sure that people know. Uh, I think Brigade dot com is their website. So just following the news there. I think.
2: And, and for the Facebook. Uh, uh, equivalent forward.us fwd.us uh, they're trying to do it as well there's a lot of activity in this area i mean i'll say you know because it's stanford the, the book and some other project been funded by the hewlett foundation their madison initiative mm-hmm. if you're interested in this they're going to spend 50 million dollars over the next three years on, on particularly issues of polarization and, and elections you mentioned pew before pew charitable trust mm-hmm. is an enormous amount uh, and so there is a lot of uh, interest in this on the outside
1: we had a question in the back
4: yes um, I was going to comment on comments that you made earlier about um, California. And I have a very close friend who just termed out of the Assembly. But one of the things that she uh, thought was really important was in California that we eliminate term limits. Because term limits have um, really allowed the lobbyists to control the legislature. And that would be a fix. Now, apparently we kind of fixed it but not really where now people can be in the legislature for 12 years um, and so that might change some of the revolving or the musical chairs that's going on currently but who knows but anyway I'd like you to comment on that and then the other question that I have because I'm still a little confused is um, I don't understand how Citizens United or the other uh, uh Suits that were uh, that were upheld, um, decisions that were upheld, um, uh, regulating money. How that affects um, public funded elections at the state level? Um, I'm confused about that because I thought that it it uh, affected all all elections, state and and federal
2: let take the term limits uh, question first, which actually here at Berkeley there is is the repository for all the research on term limits. I mean, uh, uh, Bruce Kane, who's now at Stanford but was my mentor at Berkeley, um, was uh, led a whole project uh, setting the effect of term limits to and, and pointed out that particular point, which is that if you have uh, fewer uh, politicians who are are there and develop expertise, well then it's just the permanent. Lobbyists who are the ones who basically run the show and it's a, but and that 's a lesson again as to sometimes the perversity of a lot of these good government initiatives, which is that the attempt is to sort of whether it 's to dampen down the parties or to to cripple the candidates, well, the outside groups then are the ones who are left holding the bag, and then they, they, uh, their power is accentuated, just to be clear on on um, the effect of these decisions on state elections so so, so Citizens United and the McCutcheon decision, as well as any other campaign finance decision, has the effect of striking down any analogous laws at the state level, so for example, most notoriously, in Montana, which also had its um, a ban on corporate spending and which dated back well over one hundred years because of the ef- effect of the railroads and the utility companies out there basically buying elections uh, they, they, that decision was also affected by Citizens United, and so all the laws that ban corporate spending in state or local elections are now unconstitutional. Um, However, public funding um, would be constitutional at the federal level, and it would be constitutional at the state or local level. Um, The problem is just that Citizens United, I mean, there's no political willingness to do it at the the federal level, but Citizens United doesn't touch that. Same with uh, disclosure, which Citizens United upholds uh, and then uh, you, it's really just where's the political will for increased disclosure.
1: I've got a quick question I'd like to ask Pete. On what I would refer to is stru- structural polarization. You know, you're encouraging people to be involved with the party and the like. Mm-hmm. But, for example, I lived in Connecticut for a good while. I'm a Democrat, but vote for Republicans on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Shays was a congressman mm-hmm. in Connecticut, progressive Republican, yeah. former Peace Corps volunteer, and I would traditionally vote for Shays, and then I thought, wait a minute, I'm... this increases the likelihood of John Boehner to be Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. and Boehner takes the position, I'm not going to allow you to reach across the aisle. I can remember the vote of saying, no, the Republicans will vote, and if the majority of our caucus, if it isn't, they're not in favor, it ain't going to the floor. So I'm kind of saying.
3: How do I vote for a Republican under those circumstances? Well, again, in California, we don't have that problem. Um, uh, We have other problems. Um, I'll say two things on that. One is that we are talking about campaign finance here on this panel, and I think, uh, and I agree with the professor, that the... If, if we are continuing to weaken parties, we, we need to understand there are repercussions to that, um, that we're dealing with, that bring us here, really, in many ways. The second thing is that if we are looking for greater civic participation in the parties, uh, then John Boehner is going to come out of a, a district and a place that's also going to have to be held accountable to that as well, right? So I, I, I guess I would just say that you're, uh, you're either in or you're out, and if you want to have influence on the political system, then the levers of power that we've given almost constitutionally have been really through the parties. And trying to bring an influence, if you are more moderate than, say, a Boehner, uh, is, is really to participate in that party or in the opposition party if you want to have influence on who gets sent. I mean, we had... There was a time when... Uh, when Tom Daschle, the sitting Senate minority leader, was bounced out of an election, right? So these things can happen through participation at the more local level. Now, as a, as a, uh, as a denizen of Connecticut, you may not have a chance to uh, influence the election for a John Boehner, but that's, I'm talking about a principle here, which I think, if practiced, gives us the best chance of that influence.
1: Well, thank you very much, and thanks to the entire panel. Uh, Excellent food for thought from many of your comments. Really appreciate it. Now would I can introduce Didi von Lobenzels
4: for a few closing remarks. Well, we want to thank our fabulous panelists. I mean, really, for so generously sharing of your expertise with all of us gathered here and on behalf of all of us gathered here and the Goldman School Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement, founded by the Class of 68. We truly, truly thank you.